The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decision. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Stock Doc. I'm your host, Dr. Nigel Finch, and joining me from Newport Beach, California, is Craig Cooper, Craig's Executive Director, CEO of Cardiax Limited. Now, Cardiax is listed under the ticker code CDX and is a global health tech company focused on cardiovascular monitoring with activities in wearables and in telehealth solutions. Craig, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nigel. Good to, uh, good to hear from you. Now, before we turn to Cardiax, I'm interested in your background and your experience. Um, now, you're an economics law graduate from Sydney Uni. Can you take us back to why you chose Sydney and then your whirlwind career since graduating? <laughs> I don't know how much time we've got, Nigel, but um, uh, I'll, I'll start there, which is a good place to start. Look, um, I had a very sort of untraditional upbringing. I, I mean, I literally left a home when I was 14 in New Zealand to go surfing on the Gold Coast and, you know, never finished schooling. I effectively left before the school certificate at the age of 15. Uh, that's normally taken in New Zealand. So I literally spent about six or seven years like out of the educational system, you know, from a very early age when most people were going through high school and and on to university, I was literally on the Gold Coast surfing. So, um, you know, it got to the point when I was 21 where, you know, I was living with my now wife and, you know, we obviously decided we needed to do something more substantial with our our lives. So we literally packed up the car in Queensland, drove to Sydney. And I'll tell you, I had no, you know, formal uh, qualifications to get into Sydney Uni, but I, I rocked up on the steps of the admissions office in um in Sydney as a 20-year-old asking how I could enroll in law school uh, for the next year. And they literally uh, were very kind, but they, um, you know, escorted me out and gave me a few pamphlets. So um, so I spent the next year basically at, um, at TAF College in Seaforth, where I did my years 11 and 12 equivalent um, in the single year and ended up um, coming second in my year at TAF and in the top 1% in the state. And I'd always targeted getting into uh, law as a mature age student, um, given that I was, um, you know, 21, 22 at the time. But I ended up getting the marks to do, you know, full economics law at Sydney. Um, and, you know, I was able to enter, you know, that double degree program, um, you know, as a uh, normal applicant. So, um, look, as to Sydney itself, as, as you know, it's a beautiful campus that, you know, I'm looking back quite some years now, you know, 20, you know, five, 20, well, nearly 30 years ago, actually, um, even more that um, that I did my degree. It's a, it was the number one place to go, particularly for law school, which, you know, the old days of the Phillip Street campus opposite the Supreme Court and everything that went with that. So, um, yeah, I was, you know, I was blessed and privileged to be able to do it, but I worked hard to get in. Well, it's a, it's a good a good story of per, of perseverance. So, where did, uh, where did, tell us about some of the career highlights since graduating, because you've had a um, a pretty full career as well. Yeah, I think, look, I think there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot to unpack there, but I think the top highlights are, um, you know, I went um, pretty much straight into full-time work during uni. I was with the Bank of Singapore and, um, and a, uh, a stockbroking firm called uh, Neil Mantha Arthur. Uh, so from pretty much year two in my economics degree, I was working full-time with a dealing desk down in the city with an old NEC 9B phone in my jacket and driving a, you know, an orange BMW, like a, you know, a true yuppie. Um, and um, so, you know, I spent a couple of years doing that through the 87 crash. Then I, then I moved over to Freehills and started working um, as a paralegal in Freehills. I eventually, when I graduated, I uh, went to work at Freehills full time in the uh, corporate and securities law section. Um, about a year later, um, I jumped over to Blake Dawson Waldron, where um, I joined the sort of newly formed project team. I was recruited from Freehills to come as part of that team. Um, and we were focusing on large infrastructure acquisitions and projects law. And, and through that, um, uh, I came across a client um, called NRG that was entering Australia in order to take account of the uh, privatizations that were occurring across all the state electricity utilities in Australia at the time, and I'm talking about the mid-90s. So uh, myself and another uh, uh, individual at Blake's, we basically took two months off from Blake's. We pitched NRG in Minneapolis around starting an Asia-Pacific office at the age of 29. Um, a couple of months later, we ended up uh, with a platform which, built, uh, which we built into what uh, was at the time the largest private uh, utility uh, uh, operator in Australia. We owned Collinsville, Loyang B, uh, Gladstone Power Station. So we were acquiring these from the Queensland government, mm -hmm. uh, the Victorian government, as well as partnering with the likes of Camalco and other corporates. So it was a five and a half billion dollar business that we built it, you know, in our early 30s, which we exited. Um, and then, you know, jumping forward a few years, just in terms of, you know, the time we have available, um, I had been investing significantly in the mobile technology sector and a lot of digital health and first iteration of internet companies. So um, I ended up uh, partnering with the then uh, sort of fledgling sort of founder of uh, Boost Mobile in Australia. And I say fledgling because it was a you know, small company at the time. Um, and together we took uh, Boost Mobile to the United States, built that out, sold half of that originally to Nextel, one of the big networks here, and then ultimately exited that um, in um, you know, the early 2000s. Um, I then ran a number of venture funds. The most uh, sort of prominent was I ran Masayoshi Sons uh, SoftBank Fund here on the West Coast uh, for a number of years. Uh, so as you know, Masa now has the Vision Fund, the, the $100 billion fund, um, you know, a huge visionary, but we were the, we were the sort of principal uh, investors around some of these first generation digital media companies like, you know, uh, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, um, uh, some of them may not be so familiar, like XAD and associated content and the like. So, um, yeah, so uh, I've had a I've I've had a, a a varied career, but everything's been, I think, Nigel, very much rooted in disruption. So, you know, in terms of you know mobile technologies, in terms of you know the power sector, the consumer businesses that I've invested in across my venture career. And, you know, ultimately, I was asked the other day sort of what my path was to becoming a CEO. And, you know, basically, I, I would really um, sort of look to 
you know, the 10 years that I really spent in venture capital and the exposure I had across, you know, hundreds of businesses, hundreds of CEOs and thousands of business plans. And really from an operational perspective, um, sort of I had that deep experience, but, you know, really from an executive management and company buildings experience, I think my venture experience was probably the most beneficial during that time. And that's and that's really what I wanted to to draw out. So look, thanks very much for giving us that background because I think it really speaks to your experience in business building. Um, and now let's switch over to Cardiac. So how did you get involved in Cardiac? Look, I was coming. I came back to Australia um, about two and a half years ago. Uh, my daughters had been going to college there, um, so I, I was looking around the Australian market for some opportunities just so I could spend more time there um, with my kids at school. Um, and we were introduced to it by Taylor Collison, who had been a long sort of standing and I would, I would venture to say long suffering shareholder, like many of the shareholders in what was then uh, listed as Accor. And, you know, really, Nigel, you know, it's pretty, um, it's pretty unique to come across, um, you know, opportunities like this in terms of uh, businesses that really have the capacity to disrupt a, a significant sector, and in this case, in the mid-tech sector. It had been a, you know, I think uh, uh, Michael O'Rourke founded this business 25 years ago, literally, uh, when the first um, sort of private company incorporation of Accor occurred. The public listing was about 15 years ago. And, you know, really that the business up until I got involved had been a a uh, significant but very small business, significant from the point of view of technology, uh, but small in terms of the uh, market opportunity and focus that the company had. And, you know, really, I think if you ask me the sort of the, the main value that I bring and have brought to this business is really the ability to um, to take the technology, which is the core foundation of the FDA cleared uh, Sphygma core technology for central blood pressure and really create a expanded ecosystem of products, markets, uh, solutions and channels outside of what uh, the companies have, the, the company has been focusing, uh, had focused on to date. So the company really needed uh, to pivot and it needed to pivot pretty significantly. And, uh, you know, we still retain the core business of the company and it's going, uh, you know, better than it has been for the last, you know, six or um, seven years. But our strategy that I saw was, um, given my experience, how could you leverage new markets, particularly consumer markets, uh, particularly uh, new device opportunities? And then how do we build out those platforms? And um, you know, it, it's it's a it, it's a you know it's a slow uh, you know boat to move in the initial stages because it had a lot of you know legacy staff and um, uh, 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 culture in terms of you know where the company was focused. But you know, I truly believe now, two and a bit years into this, we have the this, the perfect foundation to execute against everything we're telling the market that we're doing. So, Craig, let's get down to the nuts and bolts. Just in the, in, on the back of an envelope, can you give us a quick snapshot of Cardiex, like the revenue, headcount, number of countries you operate in, just that kind of thing so we can get a sense of the size and scale? 
Yeah, sure. Look, our 2019 revenues are about four million. We haven't announced 2020 yet, but uh, we've made you know significant incremental uh, top line progress since then. So uh, that's a positive. Um, our uh, our burn is about you know two two and a half million dollars, but importantly, Nigel, that's all directed towards new product development. Um, in terms of the traditional business, it's effectively operating on a cash flow uh, break-even bo- uh, basis. Um, we have about 24 staffs spread between uh, Sydney, Shanghai, um, Irvine, and Chicago, um, each with different, um, uh, you know, a different focus in terms of sales, business development, etc. Executive offices here in Irvine, Newport Beach, California, um, with me. Um, so, um, yeah, so we're a small company, small cap listed, but, um, you know, obviously we've got huge aspirations in terms of where we're going from a product basis. And Craig, what's the problem that Cardiex is focused on solving and how big do you estimate this market, um, will be? Yeah, so we're focused on, uh, three, pro- three problems, but effectively, you know, uh, one umbrella pro- problem. So, I mean, we're really focused on the largest problem in the world from a health, uh, med tech perspective, which is uh, cardiovascular disease and related uh, disorders. I mean, there's a 1.3 billion uh, global hypertensives. There's around 18 million deaths a year um, from cardiovascular disease. Um, so within that framework, we're, we're focused really on um, four key markets. One is global blood pressure monitoring with our new device um, strategy, and that's about 2.5 billion a year. Secondly, merit, medical wearables market in terms of the uh, device partnerships and the new products that we're rolling out in 2021. It's about $37 billion a year. And then thirdly, in terms of connected devices and digital health, um, in terms of our um, remote patient monitoring ecosystem, that's about a $500 billion market in 2025. So we're focusing on large markets with significant health problems. And so how important is blood pressure in diagnosing and treating illness? Well, historically, it's been the sort of precursor in terms of, um, you know, diagnostics and treatment for um, for hypertension, which is the most significant uh, contributor to cardiovascular disease, as well as other comorbidities like renal disease uh, and stroke. So it's been the foundation um, diagnostic in the traditional device, which is the sphygmomanometer. So um, it's it's critical, but the, the, the issue to date is that it's been based on um, uh, global population studies. Um, it's failed um, the public healthcare system in terms of um, being able to identify and turn the tide on cardiovascular disease. So uh, we're looking to disrupt that whole sector in terms of new device opportunities, uh, which deliver better diagnostic, uh, better indications of uh, treatment and better long-term uh, health outcomes, and all that's based on our uh, FDA-cleared uh, technology. So, tell us what is a sphygmomanometer, and why did it need to be redesigned and disrupted? So, the sphygmomanometer is the, effectively the the traditional way of uh, measuring uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure through pressure changes uh, in the brachial cuff. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone's had a had a blood test before. The problem is, as I said before, Nigel, uh, it's a 120-year-old uh, device. There's been no disruption of it. 
um, in terms of providing individualized care for patients, as well as uh, identifying risk uh, for hypertension. And the most significant part for us in terms of we fit into that, where we fit into that equation is that about 30% of the general population falls outside the net um, of being, uh, or what I'll call the capture net, of being identified at risk for cardiovascular disease because they're registering as what call, what's called high normal on a traditional reading from a brachial cuff. And through our technology, we're able to identify uh, which patients within that 30% uh, of that net um, should be um, identified uh, for better treatment options, better, uh, better care and better management because we take a reading at the aorta through our central pressure technology, which is a much more precise and much more relevant indication of um, of risk for hypertension and cardiovascular disease. So with this technology, can you talk us through your partners and your channels to market? How do you get this product to market? Yeah, so we have an existing product line. We have the Excel device as well as the Oscar II. The Excel is our uh, sort of flagship device that we sell to research institutions, big pharma, specialist cardiologists. Uh, it's done through a very traditional sales force. Um, um, our OSCAR II is an ambulatory blood pressure monitor, which is a SunTech device, but we provide the core technology uh, into that. And again, that's sold through uh, traditional uh, channels. The next generation of our devices will basically um, uh, be sold through a really a, a completely disruptive sales channel um, and principally based on uh, direct consumer. So our, our next device, the Apollo, which it's codenamed, will be sold direct to consumer, as well as all our wearables um, and smart devices and other partnerships. Mm. And so can you just talk us through your current portfolio of solutions and how the revenue model operates? Yeah, so with our, with our existing um, two products, uh, we sell them either um, directly um, to uh, large pharma institutions, research or cardiologists or nephrologists, or if it's a large clinical trial, like one that we announced uh, significantly uh, yesterday, uh, we provide a lease program with the amount of uh, devices that that respective trial requires. Uh, so it could be anywhere from 10 to sort of 200 devices that we lease. And the lease price for those units over the course of the, um, over the, course of the trial can be anywhere from you know, nine to twenty-seven thousand dollars. So uh, we have we have effectively, you know, a, a, a two uh, revenue models in respect of our current uh, products. Our new products, though, Nigel, will be um, will be not only direct to consumer revenue, but also subscription based. We have a SaaS model that we're selling into uh, physicians and clinicians. Um, and then we have a model around our digital platform for subscription of uh, for the app, as well as for our uh, as well as for our uh, cloud infrastructure that we're going to be leasing uh, to clinicians and hospitals. Mm -hmm. So, why is it that customers use your products, and what uh, how are you sort of positioned, or how do you sort of see the future of uh, wearable sensing? So uh, the customers that use our product today do so because we're literally the only game in town. Uh, we're the only ones with an FDA cleared technology that can measure central pressure 
um, at the aorta non-invasively. And that's, that's a big, big deal. Our problem, as I uh, mentioned at the outset, is that the focus has been very clinically based as well as to a, to a very specialist market. Um, and, that's, and that's changing. Our next generation of solutions will be uh, focused on a much broader market in terms of um, the general uh, practitioners, uh, in terms of the wearable device and smart uh, device companies, in terms of the uh, connected fitness device companies like Peloton and Mirror, Tonal, uh, and the like. So it's a completely different channel and uh, go-to-market strategy for, uh, for each of our product lines. And how do you integrate into telehealth solutions? So, I mean, telehealth, I can mean a number of things, but what we're developing is really a, um, a full ecosystem um, uh, built around um, our core technology for central blood pressure. So that includes both a device, a connected device, a Bluetooth connected device into a cloud-based infrastructure that then connects um, uh, through to uh, either uh, a consumer uh, by way of an app or a clinician by way of a, um, a clinic, clin- clinically-based portal in that clinician's office. And this is not a simple thing to do, Nigel, I might point out, because uh, you know, when you build a cloud-based infrastructure and you start sharing data and, um, and you're building it around HIPAA and all the data requirements for the sharing of medical data. That's what we've been focused on, you know, way back before sort of COVID hit. So we've been we've been building that infrastructure, um, you know, since we first announced this to the market back in, um, you know, late 2019. But we will have a fully integrated telehealth uh, solution as part of it. But it's only one part of that ecosystem that's required. And in what ways has COVID-19 positively impacted your business? Look, we were, we were, um, we were building um, our product plan out before it hit. So really nothing has changed uh, since then. It's not as if we've pivoted because of COVID, um, but we're certainly, um, we're certainly not being affected like um, a lot of the med tech companies are who weren't really positioned as we are uh, both on an existing as a new as well as a new product basis i mean if you look at if you look at the numbers that came out in new york most recently about 87 percent of fatal events in new york occurred um, um, in patients that had hypertension or a related comorbidity so we see the market going forward as as very significant for us in terms of better diagnostics beforehand for cardiovascular health, as well as better management of patients um, once they recover from the disease. Yeah. Now you've got FDA approval, but can you just talk us through any other regulatory approvals that you might have in other markets and a little bit about your IP portfolio? Yeah, so we have CE mark approval in Europe. We have, um, uh, we have uh, China FDA approval um in uh china it's ndfa and um so that covers our our portfolio of products that we sell at the moment our new approval process for our new product line will start um around december this year january uh next year as to as to patents we have about 18 to 20 
existing registered patents, which cover um, a broad range of, um, of algorithms and features embedded in our uh, technology. Uh, anything from, um, you know, systems for taking, um, uh, you know, arterial readings from a pulse-based sensor and the like. Mo most importantly, though, Nigel, is the recent patent that we just announced um, about uh, two and a half months ago, which was a specific uh, patent for uh, taking a clinically relevant cardiovascular signals from a PPG-based finger sensor. So we think we think that's going to be a game changer. Uh, no one else has got it. No one else has been able to do that. Um, and that's where our sort of technology and history really comes to play in terms of, you know, that's that sort of opportunity. Yeah. So tell us about your expansion plans for the business. Yeah. So at the moment, uh, we're like, uh, you know, a thousand percent heads down on new product development and executing against new products, uh, getting to market across across both uh, our wearable partnerships uh, as well as our new device strategy. So. Um, that's going to be really becoming more visible over the course of the next uh, uh, 12 months uh, in terms of you know, new products to the market. But really, if you're asking me where sort of 90% of our time is spent, it's really on that, Nigel. Hmm. So what sort of things can we expect to see from your business over the coming quarters? Look, I think for us, um, a sort of uh, a continuation of progress around um, new product development and announcements in that regard in respect of new partnerships, be they manufacturing or strategic partnerships. Um, we're moving towards, you know, upwards of, you know, six new uh, devices, including apps um, and other platforms in the market by this time uh, next year. Um, you know, a shift from our traditional business model into, you know, multiple new revenue streams, um, as well as multiple new channels and uh, market opportunities. Um, and really, you know, first to market with a number of a number of new, very clinically relevant wearable products that you know we hope, and you know, obviously strongly believe are going to be game changers in the medical devices segment. Craig Cooper, it's been a pleasure, and thanks very much for taking the time uh, to explain to us a bit more about CDX. And I wish you every success in the future. Fantastic, Nigel. Great to hear from you, and stay safe.